Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, or Apollonia, didn't practice that, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason, some of the brothers, before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also... They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is God's word. Man, that was nice and loud too. Y'all can be seated. <clears throat> well done. Y'all are getting good at that. Uh, well, I'm going to shock many of you today, very controversial um, thing about myself. That is, most mornings on my way to work, when I should be praying, meditating on Scripture or something very holy, I listen to NPR. Okay, WNCW, it's, it's, my, it's my default, you know, you guys listen to WNCW, 88.7? Uh, I like the bluegrass. Uh, on the mornings, they, they, they do NPR. I enjoy the segments on animals, space discoveries, interviews, personal stories. NPR is also blatantly political and deeply slanted. Uh, and I'm not the kind to stick my nose in politics for enjoyment, but it does challenge my worldview and cause my brain to start thinking before 9 o'clock in the morning. Many times I have come home to tell Mariana, you won't believe what I heard on NPR this morning. One of those weeks uh, was this week. That happened. Uh, they were telling me a story about a high school drama class somewhere that was doing this musical play about a spelling bee competition. Uh, some of the themes in this high school play were bullying, self-esteem, be who you are, the pursuit of knowledge, being cool versus being a nerd, marching to the beat of your own drum, all that kind of stuff. And honestly, it sounded like a pretty funny play. It sounded like a pretty, pretty good one. But as the kids had been practicing for months, word got out about some additional details of the play, and parents began to express their concern. They found out that the lead character had two gay men as parents. The script was riddled with F-words, taking the Lord's name in vain. There were many sexual innuendos. There was a sacrilegious display or depiction of Jesus. 
Somehow, the drama teacher thought this was appropriate for 15-year-olds. The principal of the school ended up canceling the play, and the paper, the reason he gave, was due to vulgarity. This is a play about a spelling bee competition. Um, but the NPR segment wasn't about the vulgarity of the school play. The concern of this bit was about censorship. The drama teacher was interviewed as a victim. The local community of drama hobbyists revolted against the principal's decision to cancel the play. The teacher felt it was her duty as an educator to teach and expose these young folks to LGBT concepts, and she had been shut down. So in her revolt, with the backing of the local community, the school board voted to continue the play and do some minor editing to remove some of the inappropriate content. So they performed the play, but afterwards still complained, feeling that because it was so heavily edited, it missed the thrust of what the play was supposed to be all about. This situation is a good example of the confusion we see in our culture today. We have a battle of standards, a battle of what is right and what is wrong, and who gets to say what is right and what is wrong. Who gets to choose what goes under the label of inappropriate content? Who gets to decide what's considered appropriate content? Who is censoring who? These kinds of battles will continue in circular arguments because both sides contradict themselves. Both sides are arguing for an absolute truth while at the same time admitting that truth is a relative concept. Even as I read that story, many of you were shaking your heads. That's an opinion. What gives you that opinion? Where are you basing your judgment on that story? These battles are not so much about truth but about what we want, what we think is right in our worldview. We hear arguments all day long of the right way to do things, but the only foundation offered is personal opinion under the waves of cultural trends. So, what separates opinion from truth? That's the passage, or that is the question that this passage calls us to wrestle with this morning. Is everything relative to our personal suppositions? Does truth change and vary from generation to generation based on majority perspectives? Well, we're Christians, right? What do Christians think about all this? What do we say about the truth? What does Jesus have to say about the truth? In praying for his disciples in John chapter 17, his prayer is, Lord, your word is truth. Sanctify them, my disciples, my followers, in your truth. Jesus not only believed that there was a standard of truth, but he taught that his followers should be washed in and perfected by that standard of truth. And that prayer in John 17 is also in the context of being called out of the world. They're going to be in this world. Spare them. Save them. They're, they're going to live otherworldly, living by my truth. So that means a byproduct of worldly living a byproduct of worldly living is a diminishing reliance on any absolute truth to live by. Truth becomes more and more relative the more worldly we become. But sanctified living, as Jesus prays for his disciples, is guided by a compass of absolutes that cannot be challenged. What are those absolutes? What do we know to be completely true? Your word is truth. 
We read a portion of Psalm 119 this morning. We could have read the entire thing, right? Maybe we should have. I don't know, but you guys did great. Thank you all for reading this morning. Um, Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Has anybody added up all of God's truth? What's the sum of God's truth? The sum is a hyperbolic amount that no one can truly measure. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and knowledge and foreknowledge of God. If we could reach the end of what God knows and all that God is and who He is, all of that added together is all the things that would be absolutely true. And all of that about God and who God is and what He says endures forever. It doesn't change by waves of culture or generations. It is the absolute standard of truth. Of course, we only have what he reveals. He doesn't tell us everything, right? Through general revelation, creation, how beautiful are the starry hosts of heaven. Jesus shines brighter. But we have a picture of who God is in this world. We have a picture of who God is uh, in Jesus coming to earth and in the scriptures that record God's revelation to man through the gospel. Everything God has revealed to us is absolutely true. Everything that God has revealed to us is absolutely true. So what would you do if you knew that there was an absolute source of truth? There are two responses. Repent and believe. Be sanctified in the truth. Or rise up in anger and jealousy. Those are the two responses we see in our passage this morning. And the question isn't really so much about what's absolutely true, but who is God? And not just who is God, but who is your God? If God is God, everything that comes from him must be absolutely true, and he must be worshipped and followed and obeyed. But if our opinions and our emotions and our personal conclusions are our God, then that is what we will follow. Truth is not just about what's right and wrong. It's about who you worship. And we worship self or we worship God. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You're going to end up hating one and loving the other. Those who make themselves their own God will hate the truth. So as we look to these two responses in Thessalonica and Berea this morning, I also want to make three quick arguments about God's truth revealed in the Bible. The Bible is what they use to argue Jesus from the Old Testament, right? So we're going to be talking about God's Word a lot this morning. That's what they had. That's what we have. Paul shows in this passage the Bible is reasonable, the Bible is persuasive, and the Bible is alive. The Bible is reasonable, the Bible is persuasive, and the Bible is alive. First one, the Bible is reasonable. So we're moving from Philippi to Thessalonica. Uh, Awesome scene in the middle of the night, right, where uh, there was an earthquake after Paul and Silas had sung the whole building down, and the bars fell off, or the shackles fell off their hands, and the Philippian jailer was about to harm himself, and Paul stopped him, intervened, and heard the gospel, the jailer was saved just before that. Lydia and her family was saved. Now there are two families in Philippi that are going to make up the first Christian church of Macedonia. And I would have loved to see them stay longer, right? But they have to move on. The government politely asked them to leave town, so the apostles are like, no problem, we'll go down the coast here to see what else the Lord has in store. Remember, who brought them to Macedonia? God. 
They wanted to go to Asia. Two times, the Holy Spirit said, nope, get on a boat. Go to Macedonia. <coughs> so they landed in Philippi first. Now next stop is through Amphipolis and then Apollonia. And then on to Thessalonica and Berea. So they're just kind of going down the coast of Macedonia here, if you could see it on a map. Um, and surely they were captivated by the vision Paul had in the night of what led them to Macedonia. There was a man in his dream from Macedonia crying out, saying, come and help us. Come and help us. Come and help us. Who else is crying out for the gospel in Macedonia? There was a synagogue of the Jews in Thessalonica. Now we're talking. This is Paul's bread and butter, right? Finally, a synagogue. Philippi didn't have one. He had to go to the ladies' prayer meeting. So this time, he finds a synagogue in Thessalonica. He knows what to do here. But instead of just standing up and preaching a sermon, the text says, really amazingly, um, that he spends three weeks reasoning with them. Three Sabbath days reasoning with the Jews. Maybe there's a little more patience. He's trying to take the long-term approach here. You know, He doesn't want to just see some converts and get out. He's trying to plant a church. So he sticks around. He reasons with them three Sabbaths in a row. And again, the wording is not just that he reasoned with them, but he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Luke doesn't say he preached to them, or that he exhorted them, or that he taught them. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The word for reason is where we get our word dialogue. It can be interpreted preach or address, but usually involves a back and forth that's happening. Here's what it says, let's talk about it. Here's what it says, let's talk about it. Here's what it says, let's talk about it. There's not an implication that things are heating up, like they're fighting or there's an argument. They're talking about Scripture. Paul is being very reasonable. The Scripture is being very reasonable. What does it say? Don't you want to know what it says? Did you know that it says this? What do you think about this verse? Does this coincide with the doctrine of our Jewish faith, or is there a contradiction here to what the Bible says? What did the prophet mean when he said that? Now look at this passage in light of that passage we just read. This was logical, systematic, and thorough. Beloved, my exhortation to you this morning is that the Bible is reasonable. The Bible is reasonable. What I mean by that is the Bible does not oppose logic. The Bible is a holy book and should be read with spiritual lenses, but it's also a book. That means it's got black and white letters on it, and you read it like a book, like, you know, it's words on paper. God wrote us a book, so he expects us to read it reasonably. We don't close our eyes and open a random page and hope for God's best that morning. We have to read it. Uh, we also don't just ask for wisdom and expect to understand everything in the Bible without doing some hard work, without digging, without studying, without thinking. I believe the Bible teaches that faith and reason are integrated. We don't believe Jesus rose from the dead because we're hoping for the best. That's not faith, right? He did rise from the dead because it's the most logical and reasonable thing to believe. The Bible clearly teaches it, which means God says it happened. We also have a multitude of historical resources that point to a real physical resurrection. Jesus himself appeared to hundreds of people in glorified state. Jesus let Thomas touch the wounds in his side. You got a better explanation for how the stone was rolled away? It might sound crazy to some, but it is the most reasonable thing to believe. That is the logical conclusion of all the events that took place. Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible is reasonable. 
our faith is reasonable. Paul was putting faith and reason together and working with both of them in the synagogue at Thessalonica. And the biggest point Paul wanted to stress <coughs> was the Bible's clear teaching and prophecy concerning the suffering of Jesus. <coughs> the suffering of Jesus. He explained and proved, the text says, that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. After showing <coughs> um, that this is what the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, he, he reads them all these passages and then says, Jesus, over in Jerusalem, they killed him. That's the Messiah. He came. We killed him. He rose from the dead. It happened. Now think about this context. They were a synagogue. They had read the law weekly for generations. They had memorized large portions of it. They had priests and rabbis and scribes who had devoted their entire lives to knowing and applying the word of God. And to our amazement, if you didn't know this, the biggest issue with Jesus in the Jewish context was that they missed the suffering servant king. They were looking for the, the, wider on, the rider on a white horse. They, they wanted the guy who was going to come in and kill everybody, make Jesus, make Jerusalem, you know, the, the nation to rule the whole earth. <coughs> Excuse me. But they had glossed over many different scriptures. From the very beginning of the Bible, we're looking for a king from Eve's offspring who's going to have a bruised heel. Genesis 3.15. He's going to have a limp. I mean that as in uh, being the one who crushes the serpent's head. They misunderstood David's words in Psalm 22, a king who would be utterly crushed and forsaken by God. It overlooked Isaiah's prophecy. I could say prophecies, many in Isaiah, of a savior who would be born in Bethlehem. <coughs> Excuse me. Anybody got a cough drop? It's going to be a while. I didn't come prepared this morning. I know Jack's got one. <clears throat> Look at y'all. I'm good. He, he gave me several. I'm good. He's got the Rico list. Good stuff. <clears throat> Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Isaiah said it would happen. Isaiah 53, he's going to suffer and die stricken, smitten, and afflicted. The Old Testament promised that this is what the king was going to look like. One despised by men. Rejected. These are some of the most blatant examples that I know you're familiar with, but there are also dozens of types and shadows and subtle hints that the king to come found in every single Old Testament book. Even in Joshua, as we learned this morning, right? And Judges. And every single one of those points to Jesus' death and substitutionary atonement for sin. <clears throat> I heard R.C. Sproul compare this idea to winning the lottery, right? It takes six numbers in correct order to win the lottery. <clears throat> sometimes that happens, right? It's rare. Sometimes people do win the big prize. It doesn't happen every day because getting the right numbers in the right places is nearly impossible. The chances of drawing the right combination is 1 in 292,201,338. But sometimes it happens. Now, what would happen if someone won the lottery 10 times in a row? 
Dude's a fraud, right? He'd been cheating. Jesus didn't just win the lottery by fulfilling all these Old Testament prophecies. He did it 10 times. Nobody could have faked this. Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies about a suffering king. Scripture speaks for itself and reason testifies this Jesus must be the Christ. Christianity is not a made-up fanatical religion for the hopeless and the self-righteous. It's consistent, logical, reasonable. It makes more sense than any other religion on the planet. Hold up the Bible and the Christian worldview next to any other holy book or any other religion, and I promise you, Christianity wins by a landslide. You talk about plot holes in a movie? It's seamless. Every other religion, you're going to have big old holes that make no sense. I promise you. And everybody who would say different, who would argue against that claim, I'm sure have had a lot of scholarly lectures and ancient texts, or about ancient texts and reliable renderings and historical variants, but very few of them have simply read the Bible and taken it at face value. Very few of them have practiced honest reasoning skills without bias and cultural leanings. The bottom line is that the Bible is absolutely true, and it's reasonable to believe that. Vodi Bakum says it this way, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses reporting supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed their writings are divine and not of human origin. The Bible is true, and it's a very reasonable claim. But what I love about the Bible is not how reasonable it is, but what happens when people do sit down and read it. It's persuasive. It pulls us. It calls us to truth. The Bible is persuasive. What happened when Paul used faith and reason together in the synagogue? Verse 4. <clears throat> Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number or a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So you got Jews were saved, received the word. Greeks were saved, received the word. Women, which was a big deal in those days to even call them out. They were saved and received the word. What won them over? Was it Paul and Silas and how good they were with words? Was it their gifted salesmanship? Was it their opinions and their new ideas that were so compelling? They thought, I've never heard this before. This is amazing. Paul and Silas, they've got something here. No. They explained and proved Jesus as the Messiah from the Scriptures. The Bible persuaded them to believe in Jesus as Lord. They understood it to have the final authority even over the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, and all of Jewish tradition. If they were to believe these things, they were going to have to say that all of these other people that they grew up with were wrong. But the Bible has to have the final say. What does the Bible say? <coughs> If you are persuaded by anything, church, don't let it be some guy on YouTube. Don't let it be the new Jesus Revolution movie. Don't even be persuaded by my teaching or Jay's teaching or the teaching of this church. Be persuaded by the teaching of the Bible. What does the Bible say? If it ain't the Bible that's persuading you to change your doctrine, you should reconsider. The scriptures are what persuade us to the truth. 
Maybe you've heard this question before. <clears throat> if you had the choice between a real-life video of all the gospel ministry that Jesus did on earth during his three-year ministry before he died, the cross, the resurrection, all of it on video, real-time as it happened, or the first five books of the New Testament, which would you choose? Many people would quickly say, the video, you don't have to think about it, all right? I want to see it. I want to see it. But the scriptures do something for us that a video cannot do. The Bible interprets itself. How many juries have stuck around for hours watching a video on trial because they can't come to a conclusion about it? The Bible says, this is what happened, this is what it means, and this is what you should do about it. The Bible doesn't just say, Here's what happened. It persuades us. This is truth. Jesus really came and died and lived a perfect life. And his sin was, was or, or our sin was put on him on the cross. And he rose from the dead. All of that really happened. And he calls us to live in him. We have something better than a video recording. We have God's word speaking to us. Persuading thousands of people every day, centuries later. And that's why we teach the Bible verse by verse here, right? We want to hear from God. And you don't want me picking and choosing. You know? <clears throat> um, of course, though, the Bible is so persuasive, it will also be a source of division. Not everybody believed. Verse 5, the Jews were jealous. Taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. We're beginning to see a, somewhat of a pattern in the book of Acts, right? Some people believe and repent. Some people just, they go crazy. They fight till the death. When God's word is taught plainly, people are divided. Two camps are created. Jesus said in Matthew 10, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. You will be divided over these claims. The gospel divides people. It says in Matthew 10, sometimes it will divide entire households. But the division isn't necessarily just believing the Bible is true or rejecting the Bible. There are feelings involved here. The Bible was reasonable. They simply just said, here's what it says. What do you, I mean, what do you guys think about this? This is what it says. What do you, what's your response here? You know? But the Jews didn't come back saying, well, no, actually it says this, Paul. It says they were jealous. They'd been defeated. There was no leg they could stand on. So they just got really mad about it, right? They were jealous. They don't like what it says. Many who refuse to believe the truth of Scripture don't do so because they think it's just wrong, but they don't like it, right? It doesn't rub up well with them. If the Bible is true, that means there are things that we might have to give up or we'll have to admit that traditions are wrong. We'll have to change our ways. For the Jews, it was the threat to power and influence. For the slave owners in chapter 16 with the slave girl, right? Their threat was to greed and a source of income. In our day... We have a sex-obsessed culture, and we identify by sexual um, identity. We have a national month, not just a day, a national month to celebrate the sin of homosexuality. What if I have to fight my same-sex attraction after I read this Bible? What if, what if I have to stop sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend after reading the Bible? 
What if, what if I have to stop watching porn? What if I have to stop filling my mind with garbage, as Psalm 119 says, and rather dwelling on truth? We've come to love our, our, our flesh and our lust loves these things. And we don't want to turn, it, turn our flesh away. We want to appease these things because our God is our belly. And the Lord is offering a different God. And those gods are going to fight. Only one will come out in the winter. And we know that if we read the Bible, because it's true, it will require things of us. This is another reason we teach the Bible the way that we do. When we preach through Genesis, right, verse by verse, we didn't skip the chapters about Dinah's rape and murder and incest and um, all kinds of just awful things that I just wouldn't pick out of my back pocket for you. You know, we got to talk about hard stuff. The Bible addresses hard stuff. And God's word speaks. And when God's word speaks, we should rejoice in the truth. Because as much as our flesh may rebel initially, we are enslaved. And the Bible teaches that there is only one thing that will set us free, which is the truth. Any liberty that you think is being forfeited by coming to Jesus, I promise you the chains of sin are a far worse master than Jesus' yoke. He brings liberty. He brings life. And there's such irony in what happens next. Instead of taking God at his word, the Jews in Thessalonica formed a mob, and they went to Jason's house where the disciples were probably staying. Jason was probably a new convert, someone who had believed in those three weeks and invited them in. And um, they couldn't find Paul and Silas, so they dragged Jason and a few others out into the crowds before the city authorities. They said, these men are turning the world upside down. Do something about it. And here's Jason all beat up and crippled, you know, being dragged into town. He's like, do I look like I'm changing the world? You know? I, somebody invited me to a yoga class recently. I said, do I look like I do yoga? <clears throat> all right? Here they are beat up before the kings of, of the Macedonia. And they're like, these people are changing the world. The scriptures were flipping their power and traditions on its head. The Bible was causing an uproar, not the preachers. They were just telling them what the Bible said. The Bible was the problem. God was the enemy. <clears throat> There's the real kicker in verse 7. They're saying there's another king besides Caesar. They're saying that Jesus is greater than Caesar. You know, and we don't know exactly what they were teaching. That's a true thing to say, amen. Jesus is greater than Caesar. But this was probably somewhat of a stab to, you know, the, who, who, why would the Jews care about that? They believe Yahweh is greater than Caesar, that they were faithful Jews. They're trying to appeal to Roman government to get them in trouble so they can stop doing what they're doing, right? So there's some twisting of the truth here to throw them under the bus. The deal is, though, what happens next in verse 8, it says the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. The Bible is so persuasive, so authoritative, so true, it threatens even entire governmental systems and powers. It disturbs kings. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Um, it may not seem like we're making that big a difference here in the little Spindale. <clears throat> Nobody's forming a mob at our front doors on a weekly basis. We're also not baptizing people every Sunday, you know? Are we really doing anything? Is anything happening here? Any church in any part of the world that is committed to the faithful exposition and teaching of the Bible, just as it is written, 
is turning the world upside down. The Bible does it. Not us. Not the big mega churches or churches that are baptizing people every week or have mobs at their doors. The Bible is in the driver's seat. And it is what is turning this world upside down. Anytime that God speaks by his word, all earthly authority is challenged. God's word has been working since the beginning of the world as we know it, when he spoke and all things came into existence. God's word is still working today, persuading men of our powerlessness under the everlasting and strong arms of El Shaddai. There is only one king. There is only one power. And his name is Yahweh, and his king is Jesus. He is the one true God. His words are reasonable. His words are persuasive. And most importantly, his words are alive. The final point, the Bible is alive. The authorities look at Jason, and they're like, give me some money, and we'll let you go. So they take his wallet, and the, the brothers depart. But when they got back to Paul and Silas, they were like, listen, we're in, we're in, we're in deep trouble here. They sent them away by night down to Berea, to the next city. All these little towns next to each other were about a day's journey. They might could have made it overnight. Uh, it was probably still difficult. But as soon as they get there to Berea, they don't think we should stop and rest for a while. They find the Jewish synagogue and do it again. In Berea. Here we go again. Verse 11 says, These Jews, though, were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness. Paul and Silas were doing the same thing. They're not very creative here. They were reasoning with them from the scriptures, but something was different this time. God did save people in Thessalonica, but these Jews were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They weren't examining their preconceived notions or what the Pharisees had been teaching for generations, their traditions, their flesh, their feelings. They were examining the Bible and taking God at his word, daily. Therefore, because they earnestly studied the Bible and took God at his word, many believed. God, again, saved Jews, Greeks, male, and female. We're seeing a pattern here of who Jesus likes to save, which is everybody. Amen? Yep. <clears throat> the way this text reads, though, implies that the main difference between the Thessalonians and the Bereans was not what happened after they heard the word, but before. The Thessalonians were jealous. The Bereans were noble. Now, here's what I mean by that. The Bereans were described as noble, while the Thessalonians were described as jealous. They had the same Bible, same words, same reasoning. This means that the Bible can be as clear and simple and straightforward as we could ever ask. But if the Holy Spirit does not prepare the soil for the implanted word, it will not be received. I attribute the nobility of the Bereans to the sovereign spirit of God who was already there. Right? The Holy Spirit opened Lydia's heart. The Holy Spirit opened the heart of the Philippian jailer. The Holy Spirit gave these Bereans a noble spirit to receive the word of God as it is. They were the ones crying out, in Paul's dream. The Lord opened their minds to receive the word. They believed Greek and Jew, male and female, 
Even though the Bible is reasonable and logical and true, and it is the final authority on all truth without the Holy Spirit, none of us will receive it. There is a spiritual component to our understanding of the Bible. Hebrews 4, which is a warning passage, says about God's Word, it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. We've already learned from Matthew 10 that Jesus said, I came with a sword, not to bring peace. His Word is that sword. It pierces people. It changes people. It holds people accountable. And then when Paul teaches on the armor of God for spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6, what does he call the word? The sword of the Spirit. The word is the sword of God, and it's wielded by whom? The Holy Spirit. Anytime the Holy Spirit has ever swung the sword, he's never missed. We might wonder why more didn't believe in Thessalonica, why more didn't believe in Berea, why more didn't believe in Philippi. It wasn't because the Holy Spirit missed them. God saves who he saves, and when the sword pierces, no man is the same. The Bereans were pierced. But shortly after the Thessalonians came down to stir the pot, they heard they were in Berea, so they came down there and Made a mess as well. They wanted to stop the spread of the gospel to the death. So they tried. When they got there, the Bereans were already believing. The spirit was faster. The spirit was more powerful than the kingdom of man. They did agitate and stir up a few people, but it was too late. The world was already being turned upside down, whether they wanted it to or not. And next week, we'll see the word make it all the way down to Athens with Paul and Silas and Timothy. <clears throat> so our text this morning has been all about the trustworthiness of God's Word. Let's wrap it up. I want to end with one more application from where we started. What did Jesus say in John 17? Sanctify them in your truth. Your Word is truth. Jesus' will for your life is that you would give yourself to the examination of Scripture. Jesus' will for your life is that you would give yourself to the examination of Scripture. Not just relying on your pastor. Certainly not the Pope. Read it for yourself. Examine it. Jesus wants to wash you with His Word. Jesus wants you to know what the Bible says. Jesus wants you to understand what the Bible says. Jesus wants you to be able to tell other people what the Bible says. The Lord does sanctify us through trials, through relationships, and other things. But the, but the default mode of sanctification that we must always come back to is the study of Scripture. Scripture will keep our eyes on the faithfulness of God in Christ. Scripture will protect us from false teachers and strange doctrines. Scripture will give us a joy as we suffer trials of various kinds. Scripture will increase our longing for the return of Christ and help us not get too acquainted with this world. Scripture will saturate our minds in the truth and the truth will set us free. Scripture is how God speaks to us. We may look foolish or sound narrow-minded in our modern world for thinking so highly of this old book. 
we may feel it's impossible to follow truth in an age of relativism. But they were running the truth out of town 2,000 years ago. We call this the sexual revolution. It's never been harder. I still don't have a mob at the front of our doors. Truth has always been a problem. Truth has always caused division. The problems we see today with school plays and censorship are not new problems. As long as we are on this side of heaven, people will reject the truth. And by the way, truth has a name. He is the way, the truth, and the life. John 1 says that we saw his glory when he came to earth full of grace and truth. He is the word of God made flesh indwelling or indwelt among us. Jesus is truth incarnate. And Jesus was rejected by men and died at the hands of sinners and then rose from the dead because truth could not be covered up and buried in a tomb. And it never will be. In his resurrection, he invites sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation, male and female, to examine the truth for themselves and to find life in his name. I extend that invitation to you this morning on behalf of Jesus. Examine the scriptures for yourself. Who do you say that he is? What do you say to the truth? Will you be freed or will you continue in your chains of sin? Jesus is the truth. Won't you reason together with us over these words? Will you be persuaded that this word is true? It is alive. It is speaking to us even now. His word says, come, believe. Jesus is king. So let's walk in the truth together. Father, thank you for giving us such a vivid picture of your word, how to live it, how to examine it, how to study it, see it as true, regardless of what the world says. We have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with us, so we will follow. We've read the Bible for ourselves. This is reasonable. This is true. We hold fast to it with our dying breath. And Father, I pray that the truth of God would come like a wave in our church and instruct us individually, call us to repentance in various places of sin in our lives as we read it and study it, as we be disciplined by it, it would also come like a wave and save many people in Rutherford County. Anybody here today, Father, who does not know your word as truth, I pray that you'd open their eyes now to receive the word. Help us to trust and obey. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com. Or you can call us directly at 
286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.